Hi everyone, Luke Giaconetti here. Listen, I had a really good episode planned for you guys today. We're going to be taking a look at both the Ultraman game for the original Game Boy, as well as the Showdown Ultra Fight game for the Game Boy Advance. We also had some emails and some news and some other stuff. But unfortunately, after I had recorded three quarters of the show, what I discovered was that the audio was completely unusable. So rather than have you guys suffer through some really bad audio, I mean, my audio is, you know, you got to listen to my voice, so that's enough punishment as it is. What we're going to do, I'm going to just record the last segment, which we're going to be taking a look at Marvel Godzilla King of the Monsters number 12, and we'll release this as an abbreviated episode of Earth Destruction Directive, and we'll come back with a proper episode covering those Game Boy games and the next issue of Godzilla King of the Monsters. I do want to just real quickly get into the news that I was going to cover on the episode, just because it's fairly timely. The trailer for Pacific Rim Uprising has dropped. This is, of course, the sequel to Pacific Rim. Uh, this is due in theaters on March 23rd, 2018. This is a very cool trailer. We get to see lots of new Jaegers, lots of new Kaiju, and some evil-looking Jaegers, or maybe some cybernetic Kaiju. Not really sure where that is yet. does kind of fit in line with the tease that Guillermo del Toro gave us many years ago about uh, what the sequel to Pacific Rim would be about, so please go check that out. Also in Pacific Rim news, there is a new comic series coming out from Legendary Comics, which is Pacific Rim Aftermath. This will serve as an intermezzo comic between the original film and the new film. It will fill in the gaps because it's supposed to be about 20 years or so uh, in between the two films. Now, Legendary, of course, did a prologue comic, which was Pacific Rim Tales from Year Zero before the first film came out. So this is very cool. That was an OGN. This is going to be a six-issue miniseries. It starts in January of 2018, so keep your eyes on previews for that one. And one last bit of news, Godzilla Monster Planet, the new feature-length anime film from Toho, featuring the, uh, everybody's favorite King of the Monsters. That is set to debut in theaters in Japan on November 17th, with a worldwide Netflix distribution coming shortly after that. I don't have an exact date, but it is coming to Netflix, so we will be able to watch it here in the West. Very much looking forward to that. We've never had a feature-length animated film with Godzilla before, so very, very eager to see what Toho does with this. So, that said, I'm going to go into the intro now, and again, sorry for the abbreviated episode, but, you know, sometimes you got to play things by ear. Thanks, everybody. Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, number 12, is cover dated July 1978 and was released on or about April 4th, 1978. Hat tip to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, dcindexes.com, for that information. Our cover is by Herb Trimpey, and it shows 
uh, our titular star being blasted out into space by some strange orange orange beam. And it just says star sinister. There's a lot of a lot of negative space in here, a lot of black. But it is uh, showing Godzilla looking kind of freaked out about being transported into space, as uh, I imagine that that he would be. Um, our story this time is by writer Doug Mensch, penciler Herb Trimpey. Our letterer is Bruce Patterson. Our colorist is Mary Titus. And our editor is Jim Shooter. And what's interesting is that Stan Soapbox this month actually discusses Archie Goodwin stepping down as editor to go back to being a writer and Jim Shooter becoming the editor. So we are in that era of, uh, of Marvel, beginning of the Shooter era. And our story is entitled... The Mega Monsters from Beyond, Part 1, The Beta Beast. And our summary is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. As the S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla Squad wraps up at the Grand Canyon and starts its pursuit of Godzilla, Rob Takaguchi in Red Ronin flies off in emotional turmoil after being forced to kill Yetrigar in the previous issue. Godzilla is wandering through the western wilderness when he is suddenly transported to the moon. There, he fights a bizarre creature known as the Beta Beast, which Godzilla eventually destroys with his atomic breath. Following the creature's defeat, Godzilla is confronted by the beings who transported him to the moon, aliens of the Baton race. These aliens appeal to Godzilla, telling the monster that their world has been at war against the Megans for centuries, using giant monsters as weapons against each other. With the war effort depleting the Megan supplies, they have sent three of their monsters, Triax, Ryan, and Krolar, to Earth in order to plunder it. Before Godzilla can accept the mission, the Mega Monsters show up in Earth atmosphere, and he is transported back to Earth, just as Red Ronin is confronted by the first of the invaders, Triax. Next issue, Triax the Terrible. Well, we are going whole hog into the action quotient on this issue. You know, after uh, I was a little bit disappointed on the balance of uh, monsters and human stuff in the previous issue, this one is very, very heavy on the monster side, and I found it to be quite enjoyable uh, as an overall read. So why don't we get right on into the notes? The cover, as I said, has a lot of negative space because there's a lot of black, but what I like about it is it's not just solid black. Uh, the outer space is dotted with all sorts of nebula and stars and particles. So even though it is a primarily black cover, like I'm holding it up at arm's length, you can see it's mostly black with, you know, the white and orange surrounding Godzilla and then obviously the green Godzilla right in the middle and then the yellow and red logo. It's not a, just a, a, a plain colorless field. I know that's something that um, we got a lot in the 70s, especially from Marvel it seemed. We got kind of the, just a plain background on the covers. But this one, Trimpy, and uh, and it looks like it's credited Trimpy and Joe Rubenstein. So I guess Rubenstein did the the inks for the cover. Um, it, it, the outer space has enough stuff in it that it's not just a plain background. So it really does look like outer space. Um, you know, not not uh, which I like. I think that's a very good way to do a cover with um, a large outer space environment and not just have it be plain black. Um, page one is our splash page. It's a force perspective up Godzilla, like looking up his leg as he destroys a uh, elevated um, uh, train track with a train on it, with the train crashing right towards us. Um, his sm foot smashing through the train kind of reminds me of some of the stuff we saw a few episodes back on Monster Zero with the, the feet going through stuff. It's kind of interesting. Not the best of the uh, of the splash pages we've gotten from Trippy, but I do like it. 
it it shows um, you know really shows how massive he is, and it, I like the action of instead of having the people running away from us like we normally get, we've got something very large coming right at us with the train. So that was pretty neat. Over now on pages uh, two and three, this is pretty much um, Shield's role in the in the story here, as uh, we get the wrap up from last issue. Um, where and what's interesting about this is that Dum Dum Duggan actually puts over Rob Takaguchi. He puts him over saying that, um, you know, that, uh, that he, he, that the kid reminds him of him because he's got, you know, guts and, you know, takes risks and all that. And, um, you know, and, and this leaves, uh, Gabe Jones to be kind of the sounding board for Dum Dum. Now we get even less for S.H.I.E.L.D. to do in this issue, but since they're only really on these two pages and part of that's wrap up, that's okay. Um, I don't, I don't mind that, you know, again, I know the shield guys are supposed to be the main humans, but really Godzilla's a star. His is the name on the book. So that's okay. But I do have to say that this is probably the best that Dum Dum has been in quite a while in the book because he's actually not just either a complaining to Gabe or B belly aching about whatever is going wrong. He actually had some things to say about, you know, um, that, that, you know, putting on this crusty act is the only way I know how to get through. Besides, it saves me a lot of time and grief. He goes, uh, you know, I'm, my act may be real convincing, but I ain't really afraid of that kid upstaging me. In fact, I kind of like him. He's got spunk. And uh, so that I thought was nice, that Dum Dum is actually shown to be more than just, you know, a guy pounding a desk and being angry all the time. I like that. And him putting over Rob Takaguchi does, I think, help a little bit because, you know, it, it, you can almost imagine that kind of subconsciously, while Dum Dum's mad about it, he's still maybe a little bit okay with Rob taking the initiative and doing this, even if it's incredibly irresponsible. So that, that, you know, it, it's interesting. At least it's a little bit different for Dum Dum. Now I do like Rob on this page. And I know what you're saying, Luke, how can you like Rob Takaguchi? Well, he is kind of just flying off and he's kind of an emotional wreck here, but he's acknowledging the consequences of his recklessness from the last storyline. Where that he, you know, he, he doesn't even realize that he almost killed the uh, the rafters. But he does recognize that he did have to kill Yetrigar. So is he any better than the people in the military and S.H.I.E.L.D. that he's fighting against to stop them from killing Godzilla if he had to use violence? So I do like this bit of introspection from Rob here. Now, I don't know if this was always Mench's intention with the character. But I do like this development as opposed to the just kind of you know, fly by the seat of your pants What and, and consequences be damned attitude we got from him in the previous issue. Uh, I do like here that we do get the um, the wrap-up of the miners. They get loaded up onto, uh, or we see Dum Dum uh, reuniting the two groups together. So I thought that was nice. It just a little bit of continuity from the last issue was, was nice. Turning over now to page four, uh, as the aliens are observing Godzilla, the Batons, I should say, we get flashbacks to the fight with Yetrigar, which is which is nice. We do get the one scene I really liked of Godzilla chomping on Yetrigar's arm, which is just a great shot. I really I really liked seeing that again. About down on the bottom of that page, panels four and five, we see Godzilla kind of just wandering through the wilderness, and it's Godzilla in repose. You know, the uh, the Goji abides. Um, and, uh, but it reminds me a bit of the scenes kind of about midway through King Kong versus Godzilla, where we see Godzilla just kind of walking through the mountainous, um, uh, parts of Hokkaido before he destroys the passenger train. It's just him kind of wandering through a rugged, wild space. It's, it's, it's really nice. I mean, this whole sequence here of, 
uh, starting on this page and going for the next few pages of Godzilla being transported away by the Batons, it served really well by Mench and Trimpy playing on Godzilla's inhumanity because Mench in the his caption boxes talks about that, you know, um, you know, Godzilla is not um, intelligent enough to understand or concept of what's happening to him. He's just kind of along for the ride and he's, um, you know, that time and space don't mean anything to him because he doesn't have the same type of uh, intellect that a human does. And then Trimpy's art, uh, by emphasizing Godzilla's eyes a few times in here, we, you know, because they do the eyes here where they have just a straight red eyes. There's no pupils or anything like Godzilla had at this point in the films. It emphasizes his inhumanity. And again, we got some of this previously where we were contrasting Godzilla fighting with Tooth and Claw and Yetrigar, who was fighting with his hands and tools and throwing things. So further emphasizing the reptilian inhuman nature of Godzilla. I think that's a really nice sequence here. There's some, uh, there's no anthropomorphism, despite Godzilla still having kind of the sumo wrestler build that Trimpy draws him with. He's not treated, he doesn't act um, humanoid, even though he has a humanoid sort of body, despite having a tail. So I, I really like this sequence a lot. Um, on page six, where Godzilla looks up at the portal that is opened up by the Batons, the coloring is really nice because it's pure white at the middle and then it's black Kirby crackle kind of uh, emanating out from that. Then a nice pale pink, almost like a rose pink. And then it's uh, like a, a hot pink, but the hot pink has lines of, um, of uh, not cross-hatching, it's just straight ink lines all around it. So it really looks like a, a tear in space and then there's you see some jagged edges coming off to each side it reminds me kind of like how um the x-men character blink uh x-men exiles character actually um is on tv now on the show the gifted how when she opens up her portal it's got kind of a it looks like it's a tear in space and time that's what this looks like it's really impressive um, um i really just like the use of pink because we've got you know yellow kind of mountainous range godzilla is green and then it's white um you know a, a white clouds in a blue sky and then this harsh bright pinks right in the middle it really pops it looks really cool and then we get a lot of yellows as godzilla is pulled into the portal and into the kirby crackle very nice use of color here on the next page on page seven godzilla is whipped through outer space being dragged to the moon again Sort of like in Monster Zero, except this time he's not in a, he's still in a, uh, he's got kind of like, oh, you know how a Green Lantern will have the little force bubble around him? It's not quite that, but that's kind of what it is. He's being pulled through with this force around, so that's how he can, he can breathe and stuff in outer space. Uh, again, with the outer space design, it's not just black, it's very, very full of stuff. You know, we've got uh, little meteorites and asteroids and heavenly bodies and lots of Kirby crackle showing like nebulae and stuff. I actually really like the depiction of outer space in this sequence. This is uh, much like on the cover, only more so. This almost reminds me of like when uh, when Ron Lim would do like a Silver Surfer story and that space would just be filled with all sorts of heavenly bodies. And you got a sense that this was like a like an ocean full of teeming full of stuff, not just, um, you know, a black void. It's very kind of a romantic uh, approach to depicting outer space. And I really do like it. Turning over now to page 10, which is the second splash page, where we get our, our first full look at the Beta Beast. And the Beta Beast, he looks like an ultra monster, uh, more so than like an Atlas-style monster. Very strange design, but you can see how this would work as a suit, you know, because he's got, he's got two legs, 
And then the legs are like vaguely reptilian because they have claws and then they have a, uh, um, you know, a heel spur sticking out the back. But then his body looks kind of like a mollusk or another type of uh, in, you know, invertebrate. And he's got six tentacles, three tentacles writhing around. As I'm doing the writhing around with my hands up to the mic so you can see it on either side of that. And then his head looks kind of like a sea slug. And he's got two big, bulbous yellow eyes, saber-tooth uh, uh, fangs coming out of his uh, out of his mouth and a long green tongue and his sound is grush grush that's the sound he makes the whole time so it's it's like a hissing sort of sound so I could see this as a type of monster that Ultraman would fight you know or that maybe you know the, the science patrol would launch an attack against and Ultraman would come in and mop up on him or something very nice design from Trimpy I have really appreciated Trimpy's monster designs that we've gotten so far in this series and the Beta Beast is a really nice one and he's got some great color. He's got purple legs and arms, a pink belly with uh, black splotches all over him, and then an orange kind of carapace on his back and a long uh, blue, bluish-purple tail sticking out the back. Very cool monster here. Um, it's a big shift because it's clearly a space monster. So Yetrigar was clearly an Earth monster, being a big yeti, right? And the mutants that Dr. Demonicus created, those were clearly mutates, you know, they were earth creatures that were mutated. This is a space monster. Out and out, no questions asked space monster. And I really do like this from Trippy. I mean, it, you know, we, I've seen the relative merits back and forth argued about how Trippy does work on superhero stuff, but I have really appreciated between this and Shogun Warriors, his monsters. And he does a really good job with the beta beast here. Um, now, the next sequence, it runs from pages 11 through 20, but there's some ads in the middle, so it's not quite that many pages. Um, but this is the fight sequence. This is a great fight. You know, Trippy is on point with these two inhuman monsters. I mean, we made up, we just established how inhuman Godzilla was, and now he's presented with a foe that's even more inhuman than he is. So you get these two inhuman beasts clashing. It's really like a Showa Godzilla film in that sense. You know, as Godzilla is a, is a monster, it doesn't have any humanity. But who he's fighting is even worse. So I thought that was a really nice sequence. And Mench's narration is, it's very serious. It's very earnest. It's, so it's got a little bit of weight to it, but it never really veers into corny, you know. Um, and, and I like that. It's, it, it gives it, again, some gravitas to it. I think Mench and Trippy are working very well together. And by having it be narration instead of dialogue, what that allows is for Mench to get a little... Uh, a little more deliberate with the with the the text. We don't have to say like, "Oh, Godzilla's doing this. Godzilla's doing that." He's letting the art speak for itself, and then just kind of embellishing on top of it, which I really like. So there's a lot there's a lot of cadmium yellow boxes in the <laughs> in this comic. Um, page uh, getting into the details a little bit of the fight. Page thirteen, uh, panel one. This is an absolutely great panel of the Beta Beast blasting actual flame from his mouth, and we see Godzilla rearing back in pain, and and his mouth is wide open, his tongue sticking out, and the, the flame looks really cool. I'm reminded of some of the stuff that, I think it was Carl Gafford, was the colorist on Shogun Warriors, would do with the yellows and reds, and then the, the Kirby Crackle black in the middle, so it looks like a alien fire here, but just seeing Godzilla in pain is, is uh, you know, a, a really, it's, it's done really well. And then later on down the page, panel three, Godzilla grabs the beta beast by his two antenna and suplexes him over his head. And the first thing that jumps into my mind is him throwing Ibra over his head, right? So just a really, really dynamic. And it's even, 
what I like is that they're using the moon setting because as Godzilla throws him up, Godzilla is now kind of in, he's on the dark side. So he is almost completely in shadow and silhouette. We can just see kind of his thighs and his chest, a little bit of his arms. The beta beast is up. So he is completely in the light. You can see him getting thrown and following the path where Godzilla picked him up and is throwing him. We see all the moon dust kicking up. So it really is using that moon environment and the zero G environment here. And I really like it. It's a great panel. This whole, this, this page, page 13, this is a really nicely done, done page. Then we turn over to the next page. And again, on panel one, when the beta beast lands, it kicks up a huge cloud of moon dust that are keeping up with that moon sort of environment. And then he, uh, the beta beast counters by launching spines out of his tentacles. So, and then they all get stuck in Godzilla's chest. Now, what's what's interesting is that this looks a lot, like to the point that it, it's got to be a reference to um, Godzilla having all of the Mechagodzilla's missiles stuck in him from the original Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, which was 1974. So this was, that was about four years ago. At this point, I want to say that that was released in the U.S. So, um, well, you know, now that I say that, was it? I'm going to go check. But it, it really does remind me of that scene in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla where the, uh, the missiles all get stuck in him and then he uses the, uh, the magnetic field. He generates a magnetic field to uh, destroy or to repel uh, the missiles away and then use them to drag Mechagodzilla back to him. This is such a neat scene. It actually got reused in the opening of, uh, of um, Terror of Mechagodzilla, the direct sequel. So let's see, this was released in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, March of 1974. When did it make it? Yeah, it was released in the United States in March of 1977 as Godzilla vs. the Bionic Monster, later Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster. So yes, this could be a direct reference to Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla with that scene. Oh, we get the Clark Bar superhero ad, which is a personal favorite of mine. I got a Zagnut here for you. Okay, turning over to page 19, panel one again. The Beta Beast lets loose with his flame attack. And again, Godzilla is actually absolutely in agony here. He gets it right in the chest and it like splashes all around him. And we see him again just rearing back with his mouth wide open in a roar of pain. It's a, a really nicely done panel. I mean, the Beta Beast gets put over as a real threat here and he can hurt Godzilla with his attacks. And I like that. It's a, a real good job to make this guy really a threat to Godzilla. Turning over to the next page, page 20, panels one and two, uh, Godzilla just charges right at the Beta Beast and just destroys him in a torrent of atomic breath to the point that in panel one, the Beta Beast is knocked down onto his back. And then the second panel is Godzilla literally standing over him, blasting straight down into his face. And you just see, uh, you know, the, the, all the color is drained out of the Beta Beast. I mean, this is, can, can anyone say Godzilla 2014? with him blasting the Mutos, that's exactly what this looks like. You know, some um, you know, 40 years ahead of the game, but man, just, and he just absolutely destroys this monster that has really given him a hard time over the last couple of pages, and he just wipes him out. Really cool to see Godzilla just put the hammer down on the Beta Beast here. Page 21, as the Batons make themselves known, big info dump here. Now, it is setting up the rest of the story, and it is an info dump. But I do have to say, considering that it was preceded by a very long, uninterrupted, and well-done monster fight, I'm kind of okay with the info dump here. If they had, if Mensch had interspersed the, <coughs> excuse me, the, the exposition 
into the fight. I don't think I would have liked it as much. I like the real attention given to the title star of the book and not the characters that are driving the subplot. So I'm kind of okay with it being an info dump. It's also kind of, it's not unlike a Toho film in that sense in that you have action scene, information, <laughs> action scene, information. So in that sense, whether intentional or otherwise, it does kind of fit with the Toho motif. Uh, Trippy's aliens here, the Badens are of the, uh, the weird skin tone and weird humanoid body shape motif. We saw several of this type in uh, in the uh, later issues of uh, Shogun Warriors. The Batons have long, pointy, bullet-shaped heads and purple skin and pink eyes. They also have little bat wings. I don't know if that's on their uniforms or if they actually have them. It's not, not clear because we only see them from the back really one time. Uh, now, in this segment where the Batons use telepathy to talk to Godzilla and explain the war with the Megans, which runs... Um, or a few pages here. Again, there's some ads in the middle, so it kind of gets broken up. But we get some, some nice throwaway monsters in here, which is nice, because basically the idea is that both these races, the Badens and the Megans, are using monsters of mass destruction against each other. And so, um, you know, in addition to their warships and everything else, they, they find these monsters on other planets and dump them off to attack uh, the, other <clears throat> the other race. Now, what this reminded me of is back in... Issue number two, when Dr. Takaguchi, Rob's grandfather, is explaining to S.H.I.E.L.D. about some of Godzilla's other battles, we got, again, some throwaway monsters. So that what this kind of reminded me of. It's just kind of some background monsters for Trimpy to design here, which is, which is nice. Now, specifically on page 27, panel one, we get to see a serpent monster with, um, looks like, ten little like Tyrannosaurus arms on the front fighting what appears to be a griffin. And the griffin's got like teeth inside his beak and long talons in the front and all that. Now, in that sequence in issue two, there was a griffin, was one of the monsters that Godzilla fought. But now that griffin had like a like a, a morning star, like a spiked ball on the end of its tail and was a different color. It was more of a bluish gray and this one is brown. But man, I would really like to see Godzilla fight a griffin because those of you guys who maybe listen to the Bots, Bugs, and Babes episode about uh, Golden Voyage of Sinbad knows that I'm a big fan of griffins and would really like to see one of these griffin monsters make an appearance, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So, uh, Further on down the page, uh, panel three, the mega monsters uh, are being you know shown flying through space. They look It looks like the end of a toy commercial. It's like the mega monster collection available at Toys R Us, you know. Uh, I wish. These are, these are some really neat-looking monsters. Again, all obviously space monsters. All appear to be bi um, quadrupedal, or at least not bipedal. One of them seems to have like ten legs, but they all are uh, walking down, not walking upright, which is kind of interesting. Um, again, all clearly space monsters, but since they're described as space monsters, I'm okay with that. Uh, and I do have to admit this. It literally took me writing these notes to make the connection between mega monsters and the megan race so the <laughs> they're from the planet mega so they're megan but they're mega monsters it's like wow uh you, outsm you outsmarted me there mensch score one for you you got me on that one so uh turning over to page 28 as godzilla is teleported back to earth once again some excellent coloring from colorist mary titus along with the kirby crackle in the black, which I assume would be uh, Fred Keita handling that aspect of it. Very cool again to see it. And it's very consistent. It's shown to be kind of the same way as it was the first time. And then uh, page 29, we see, you know, Rob Takaguchi is still kind of feeling sorry for himself and still having his emotional um, distress from last issue. When he is attacked, 
or I should say confronted by Triax, the first of the monsters. And then because Godzilla was off planet, they, uh, they honed in on the most powerful thing on the planet, which was Red Ronin. So in the context of this book, that makes sense. Uh, now it's like, well, wouldn't they go to like Avengers Mansion? It's like, well, we haven't, even though this is clearly the Marvel Universe, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're, they're looking for something giant to fight, I guess. And the sanctuary must still be hidden away without any pilots in it. So Red Ronin it is. And then Godzilla comes in, uh, is teleported back in in the last panel. And you see Rob saying, what? It's Godzilla appearing out of thin air. But has he come to help us or to aid this monster? And that that is where we let off. So um, a step up from the last issue, we have less human stuff and more monster action. Again, I like that it uses the comic book format to tell a story, which might be real kind of difficult to do in film. I approve of that. If you're going to make a comic, be a comic. You know, use the strengths of the medium that you have. Rob is much more tolerable this time out. He seems to be at least beginning to understand that his actions have consequences. And if he's going to grow as a character, then that early stuff where he's really a, kind of annoying, I can I can accept that better because he has to learn from his mistakes. And I'm okay with that. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. Hopefully that will be the trend that will continue here. S.H.I.E.L.D., very little to do, but they're inoffensive in their small role. Godzilla is really the star here, as he should be. It's his book. He has a, a great battle against a very unique and very well-designed one-off space monster, and we get to see a setup for even more monster carnage coming in the next couple of issues. I am very eager to see what Mr. Mensch and Trimpy have up their sleeves for the next issue, and I, I am really eager to see that. So, uh, as always, this is collected in Essential Godzilla, if you can find that. Elsewhere in the issue, we do have uh, Godzilla Grams. Um, Larry Cummings from Royal City, Pennsylvania, uh, he has a, an interesting kind of take here. He says, Dear Doug and Herb, you may not believe this, but I've never seen a Godzilla movie, and truth to tell, I have no intentions of ever changing that fact, but I do intend to keep reading the Godzilla comic book. This was interesting because I was reading in a fanzine over the summer about um, kind of the attitude that was placed towards the Japanese monster movies for a long time in the United States, that there was like this backlash whenever like famous monsters of Filmland would cover them because they weren't seen as legitimate film. They were seen as just trash. And for me growing up in the eighties that I never really experienced that bias, but it seems like that that's the bias at play here that, Oh, that's just all a bunch of crap and nobody watches any of that. Why are you paying any attention to it? But Hey, these are Americans doing that. I'll watch that. So I, I just thought that was kind of an odd, uh, odd thing here. And then, uh, the next one from Kevin Davis in Grand Island, Nebraska. I think he's getting Godzilla confused with Gamera because he says Godzilla number seven was just like the Toho movie series. Well, at least it's getting that way. First off, Little Rob fits the comic perfectly. He reminds me a lot of the little Japanese kid who's always in the movies, except that there's not. There's not a lot of kids in the movies. Maybe he's seen Godzilla versus Megalon, you know, which again, for 1978, probably would have been the one he might have seen. And it's like, no, there's not a lot of little kids running around in Godzilla movies. You're thinking of Gamera or specifically Godzilla versus Megalon. So, um, so uh, there, and there's one other um, letter from Kevin Ballinger, East Rock, New Jersey. He says he'd like to bring back uh, Droom from Monsters on the Prowl because he'd like to see Godzilla and Droom get it on. That would have been a neat idea because Godzilla takes place in the Marvel Universe and I believe it's established that nearly all of the Atlas monster stories took place in the uh, Marvel Universe. So why not have them uh, have them fight each other? The bottom part of the Godzilla Grams is Marvel Super Special number four featuring the Beatles. I think that's the one where they fight Moses Magnum, isn't it? And he's trying to sink 
uh, Great Britain under the under the ocean or something like that. I haven't read that one. So uh, bullpen bulletins, as I said, Stan talking about uh, Jim Shooter taking over the editorship. Uh, some other notes here. Nothing really. They put over Foom. There, there's a whole thing about the the pronunciation of Magneto. It says items. Speaking of pronunciation problems, controversy is still rife over the name of one of Marvel's all-time favorite bad guys, namely Magneto, evil master of magnetism. Is it Magneto, as in magnet, or Magneto, like the familiar electrical device? It, it was Stan, the man who created Maggie a few years back, but even he's not certain anymore. I've always heard it Magneto, and that's kind of become the official one because it's used in all the cartoons and movies. I knew a guy in high school who was so sure that it was Magneto and he refused to pronounce it Magneto, but I always have pronounced it Magneto. So, uh, we also get a hostess ad Spider-Man meets the home wrecker. And, uh, I think that we need to do a dramatic reading of this and it will go a little something like this. The home wrecker is on the ball again. If I don't do something fast, I'll be in no shape for that architecture class tomorrow. I love to see that big black ball take its toll on walls, and this time, I've got Spider-Man as a bonus. Another jolt like that, and this building, and this little old wall crawler, will both be flatter than pancakes. I've got to get Homewrecker's hands off those controls. He'll need both hands to catch these apple and cherry hostess fruit pies, and nobody's going to let them go by. Mmm, I love the light tender crust. The real fruit filling of Hostess Fruit Pies, I couldn't keep my hands off them. At least I can still enjoy this delicious Hostess Fruit Pie. The night wasn't a total loss. Another bad guy all wrapped up. Now to get home to do my homework. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. I'm not sure what exactly this guy is getting, unless he's maybe getting, the homewrecker is maybe getting paid to knock down buildings. Like maybe for like an evil developer that wants to like wipe out the existing buildings in a neighborhood kind of thing. Otherwise, is he just doing this for fun? Because driving a wrecking ball, I mean, how would you sneak up on someone driving an actual wrecking ball machine? I'm, I'm just unclear on his motivation. For what it's worth, Homewrecker looks like he could be like the Luke Cage villain Steeplejack's cousin. Maybe they, they you know, meet up and exchange construction-related crime tips. This one is goofy. I mean, even for all of these, but... Anyway, that's Godzilla uh, number 12. Have you guys read this one? What do you think? I, I for one, am very, uh, I've really enjoyed it, and I'm interested to see where this Mega Monster story goes from here, and I'm assuming it's going to be more monster combat. It looks like the next issue should be Godzilla and Red Ronin versus Triax. Also, is it odd that his name is uh, Triax the Terrible? All I could think of was, like, Terax the Tamer, you know? Like, maybe, like, Terax riding Triax? I don't know. Maybe I'm just because I like Terax from, you know, the especially the the Toy Biz toy of him in the 90s from the Fantastic Four cartoon series. But I'm pretty, I'm getting out there. But anyway, so this is, uh, that was Godzilla number 12. Please write in. Tell me what you guys think of this one. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We are going to take a quick break and then we will be right back to wrap up the show. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. Produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. 
I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.